Welcome to another episode of Half Stack Data Science, a show about data science in the real world. Today we're continuing our series, The Orthogonals, with a conversation with Chris Moffat. Chris is a Senior Manager, Strategic Pricing and Analytics in the medical device industry. He is an active Python user with over 15 years of experience using Python for everything from web development to system administration and most recently data science. He is the author of the popular blog Practical Business Python, pbpython.com, where he describes how to use Python to solve common business problems. We spoke to Chris about how he has used Python to his benefit at work, how the desire for automation is a mindset, and the future of complex machine learning models in the business world. Chris is entirely self-taught when it comes to using Python, and you'll hear him reflect on this when he says, there's no way to learn programming outside of programming. Please enjoy our conversation with Chris Moffat. Okay, so we're here with Chris Moffat. Chris, uh, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks uh, for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Great. So we'll start with the question we throw to everybody, which is, what is your job title and what do you really do all day? Technically, my title is Senior Manager of Strategic Pricing and Analytics. And what that means is I spend a lot of time at the company I work for trying to plan out what our pricing strategy is for new products we're launching. And our the company I work for is a medical device company in the U.S., and so we sell products directly to hospitals and hospital systems, primarily in the U.S. And so I'm taking data, either internal data that we have or external data that we purchase, and trying to determine what our appropriate pricing and discounting strategy should be for new products, as well as how to improve our pricing execution for the products we have in the market today. What's your coolest product? So our, our kind of bread and butter product, the one we're known for is a atherectomy product. And so what that means is uh, typically like in your legs or potentially in your heart, if you have like a hard calcification in the veins, it goes in and has like a diamond coated tip and burrows through that calcium to clear it up so that you could uh, potentially put a stent in or put a balloon in and kind of fracture that calcium to improve the blood flow. And it's it's really critical for people that maybe if you have this in your leg, you know, having the blood flow constricted or blocked can lead to, you know, potential amputation of your leg or your foot. So it's a really, really interesting, life-saving technology. Finally, talking to someone, David, who if they get it right or wrong, people may or may not die. You know, that, that test of are you doing something that that matters or is truly in production. It's like, well, someone's got to get something right at Chris's company because this is going to basically drill through the middle of someone's artery to try and free up blood flow. Yes. And now, now my job is more about getting it into the market. You know, I, I'm not one of the engineers responsible for designing or testing uh, these products, but there's certainly people at the company that that's absolutely, you're, you're right, critical that the data is correct. So it sounds like your job has a lot of overlap with what we nominally call data science. Obviously, you wouldn't come up on a Google search for data science. I couldn't see the phrase specifically on your LinkedIn page. So how do you feel about that phrase and the in, in the world? Because on this podcast, we, we use the phrase, but we're very aware of how, how nebulous it is and pretty, pretty useless in a lot of cases. Sure. So I, I certainly don't consider myself a data scientist. I 
view myself as someone that uses a lot of the data science tools to do my job better. And I think data science as a whole has been great for the industry from the perspective that's elevated the importance of data and doing good analysis and maybe having more creative ways to, to do analysis and helping senior leaders in the organization understand that this is a capability you need to build up and have the tools and techniques so that you can do it effectively. So I think from that perspective, data science and, or you know, being called a data scientist has been really helpful. I think the, the flip side to that is it's like with so many things in the technology world, there's such a hype cycle. And data science has gone through this where, you know, everybody wants to be a data scientist. And if you can just do a little bit of statistics, people want to uh, call themselves a data scientist or companies want to sell data science tools that maybe will, will do things automatically, whether it's machine learning or artificial intelligence or whatever the tool is. So I think there is a ton of hype, which is probably not constructive and, and can be confusing and cause some noise in, in the market. But I think on the whole, I, I think it is a good thing I, because like I said, it's really elevated the importance of data and the importance of data-driven uh, decision-making. Have you been tempted to get on that cycle at any point of it? I, I, I you can, you know, we can delete this answer if it's too personal, but you know, Given that you've had a long career doing this and you've seen probably multiple hype cycles and multiple job titles and multiple new made up field names, mm -hmm. probably it's at several points, there must have been some temptation or push or something for you to go in that direction. But you seem to be someone who's, as you said at the outset, very keen to remain a subject matter expert who has this great toolkit. I, I, I've certainly considered it. I, I think it's probably a little bit of like most people talk about a little bit of imposter syndrome. So I felt like maybe I did have some of the skills, but certainly didn't have the deep technical statistical background to really call myself a data scientist. And, you know, probably far enough along in my career that I felt like I could, I, had a little bit more of a niche that I could expand into related to the business knowledge that I had. So the knowledge of the medical device industry in the United States, coupled with that technical skill and that experience, I felt like was maybe a better career opportunity than, than jumping on the data science bandwagon. Yeah, I everyone I who's been on this uh, season, right, has has said imposter syndrome or something like it within the first... <laughs> In minutes, because uh, including people who 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 do call themselves certainly certainly from our point of view, Chris, you know if if you're if you're doing the kind of things that you do day to day that we'll talk about in a minute, uh, you know most people would qualify you, but it's just interesting to see people who've chosen to focus their branding in a different different direction and are happy with that. That's great because that shows that you know. Uh, you can get into this multiple ways, but there's also not a constrained or defined, you know, way that you have to brand yourself to make make an impact. Absolutely, and I think it's important for anyone that's considering any career move, but data science in particular. You you don't want to jump into it just because it's sexy or cool, or you think that that's where the money is. I mean, that's certainly important. We all care about that, but it has to be something that you have 
some passion and interest around because it is a job and you you have to kind of find that fulfillment whether it is the the coolest job of the 21st century or not yeah i i think i think you're right people jump into it thinking it's all just going to be the sexy stuff and actually most of data science is actually what you cover on your website practical business python so what what made you start that was it i mean your about page alludes to this that you just started using these skills and it helped you day to day so how did that come about sure so i I actually studied computer science and electrical engineering in college, and that's what my degrees are in. But I never was a computer scientist. I never actually earned a paycheck based on my my programming skills or my computer science skills. And but but it's always been there. It's always been something I've I've used and leveraged to varying degrees. When I had you know after I got my degree, I was in the Navy for four years. Got out of the Navy and was looking for a civilian job. And at that time, I actually got a job doing Unix administration. So I did that for a couple of years at another medical device company. This was a little bit more on the R&D side. And I enjoyed that. And Unix, you know, the Unix philosophy of small commands that you chain together to get your work done and just kind of doing things at the command line. I really enjoyed that. It was really easy to kind of take that computer science background and transition into doing that Unix admin work. And I enjoyed that. Did that for a few years and I moved into the Windows world where there wasn't really much of a scripting language. I mean, there was some some VB script and things like that, but it just wasn't really a, a first class citizen in Windows like it is in Unix. So at that time, I was sort of scrambling around trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And someone at one point had mentioned to me, hey, you should check out this Python thing. And at the time, I was mostly using Perl for for my Unix administration. And I looked at it and I thought, uh, you know, Python, this white space thing, I, I don't know, that's probably not that interesting. I kind of went past it. But then a few months later, I took another look at it and realized, you know, it it really worked well. A lot of concepts that I had maybe struggled with when I looked at like C or C++, especially C++, really didn't make sense. But then when I looked at Python, it just kind of clicked. And I think a lot of people talk about that with Python, that it clicked. And so I started using it. I, I did a little bit of Django work for a while and then stopped. And after a couple of years of that, I realized, you know, I was interested in getting back into the Python world because I enjoyed doing the work, but I didn't really have that much of a project or need to, to do things. And then that's why I thought, you know what, instead of like doing a project, like an open source project or anything like that, I'll start start a blog. And I originally thought that the blog would be focused more on like Raspberry Pi. That's kind of what I thought I would talk about. And so I started to put the blog together and then like just one thing fell into place after another. And I started learning about pandas and Jupyter notebooks and NumPy and all those things. And suddenly like all that, those data science concepts kind of made sense to me. And I had those opportunities to apply them to my work. And so as I was going through that learning process of learning pandas and how to use it for real world problems, I would take all that learning and write it back on a blog post. And this was when a lot of people were kind of going through this process of trying to learn how to use pandas, how to work with Excel and CSV files. And so it just resonated with a lot of people and 
got some really positive feedback. So I just kind of kept writing the blog and that's, that's how I got to where I am today with the blog. And so by then it wasn't part of your day-to-day duties at all. So Python was never in your job description. It was just something you used to like supercharge your work. Yes. So my, my job description never had Python. You know, it was never anything I was responsible for or technically in my job description. At the time, I actually had more management responsibilities. So I had people reporting to me, but I always found myself in situations where we had problems that I knew we could tackle with Python, but all people were using was Excel. And so, you know, just we had to solve the problem. So I'd roll up my sleeves and I'd do it in Python and then share that uh, solution with other people on my team and start to automate the the things that they would do on a daily basis, whether it was you know, ad hoc analysis or maybe some reporting that we were an- continually doing and emailing out to people or, you know, kind of like Excel templates. I would do that in Python and then kind of just implement that within my department. And I had the freedom to do that. There wasn't anyone really telling me to do that, but it wasn't anything that was officially sanctioned by the organization to like take Python and and go do it. And that's been a a large part of my career has been, has been doing that and, you know, trying to apply Python to solve problems without maybe some of the senior management, not really understanding uh, what, what it is and what I'm doing and, and why I'm doing it, just looking for results. That sounds a lot like data science in general, of like doing things that people don't quite understand, but trusting that you can get things done. What what was the reaction from your team and from wider business of you, like moving away from Excel and, you know, what, was it considered heresy or were, were people just... I was thinking voodoo, yeah. When... <laughs> or were they just I, happy you were getting things done? I think it, it, it was all over the map. So I think there were some people that did think it was voodoo. So if you're on a Windows system your entire life and someone opens a command prompt and you see a DOS shell and you have to type Python, you know, a script name, that to them, it, 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 some people were saying, you know, it's like going back to the old days when they had terminals, you know, it just felt really old school and they didn't quite understand it. But they, at the end of the day, if if they had a job that took them two hours and now they could do this and it took them two minutes, they, they were happy to kind of jump through whatever hoops. Other people, I think, were a little more reluctant. So if you were more in the, the big IT organization, this is, you know, unproven, untested, not sanctioned software not no guarantees. Did you follow the proper process to, you know, test this and take a year to to build something versus the, you know, couple hours that I spent on it. So there was that reaction. And then I think there were other people that just didn't really know, didn't understand, didn't really care. I mean, it just wasn't really a priority for them. So full range of reactions. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I think that when you said that some people were happy that the thing that took them two hours was down to two minutes. I think you probably had the same as, as we did sometimes where you, you, some people are, are quite resistant to that because they think that their whole job is to do that thing that takes two hours. So why would someone want to automate it in two minutes? Yes. And it is, I, I certainly encountered that. And there were certainly other types of activities that I noticed that people are doing where I'm like, oh, we can automate this with Python. Why, why can't we do it? But it was just going to be too much work and 
more of the change management was going to be harder than the uh, solution. So just didn't, didn't focus on that, but other things where it was, it was critical. It was an important business process. Ultimately we weren't going to be able to handle it with just the people we had. So we had to find a way to make it more efficient. Hmm. And when you were out there, both leading teams, but also clearly responsible for delivering answers to complicated questions, did you manage to start any other individuals on their own journey in the same way? And, and what, what proportion of people who saw it uh, had that reaction at that extreme good end of realizing, I should actually not just rely on Chris's code, but actually maybe he's onto something and I should get on this road too. Yeah, so I, I've had fits and starts with that multiple times over my career trying to bring people along. And I have had some people that were pretty interested and willing to kind of roll up their sleeves and, and want to be mentored along. I've had others that have been reluctantly cast into that role, like you're, you're going to learn it. And maybe because they had a little bit of programming experience, maybe they were actually exposed to Python at some point. And, and they would try, but I, you know, ultimately it seems like it really has to, the person has to be internally motivated and excited to do it. And there's, there's only so much I can do. And I think you probably both know this from, from your backgrounds and educating and uh, training people that sometimes it just, it sticks and sometimes it doesn't. And I, I wish I could say I had this track record that I've had, you know, hundreds of disciples that uh, that I've trained and cast forth into the world, but it hasn't really happened that way. There have been a few people that I think it's really stuck, but a lot of people where it just, you know, it was, it was a little bit of a necessary evil for them to kind of keep keep the scripts going without really understanding and, and building that Python skill. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a mindset, isn't it? To want to automate your job away so you can focus on the things that that, you know, you should be focusing on. Yes. And I think that's what's, you know, somewhat hard for me is that's everything I learned. I learned on my own. I mean, I, I obviously learned a lot in, in school and the university. So I had that basis and learning a new language isn't as hard once you've had that, that formal teaching. But everything I learned was just like, I wanted to read my own, you know, read the books, read the websites and got it done. Whereas, trying to teach people that maybe just want to do their nine to five job and, and not really dive into it. it. It's harder. It's, it's definitely a different skill and something I'm continuing to try and work on. But it's the future of work, right? It's, you know, it's a shame sometimes when you can't convince people. I mean, David and I had this situation where we both were working before of, you know, being part of a team that was more than capable of helping other teams dig themselves out of this rut that you can be in. And, uh, but we sometimes had reactions like, I'm sorry, I, I can't spend time explaining what this two hour process is so that you can automate it to be a two minute thing because I've got to run the two minute, the two hour process this week. I, I have seen that so many times, you know, I, people, don't want to take the time. They'll acknowledge it's a painful process and they don't have time, but they just can't find the time to to help you solve it. And yeah, it's frustrating. It's really frustrating because I, I, I think ultimately 
you know, like I view a computer as a tool that's supposed to help us be more efficient. We're supposed to be faster. We're supposed to be able to get more done. And anytime I see someone that's cutting and pasting or, you know, entering data by hand or, you know, doing all like Excel color coding and auto filters, you just want to say, you know, it shouldn't be this way. This is not what was meant to happen. And I, I don't want to make you a computer scientist, but we should be able to get you up to the point where this isn't how you're spending your time because there's a lot of other things you can do that are more valuable. And it's, I see it all the time. Like every organization I've been in, I've had that experience and it's incredibly frustrating. It's interesting. You said copying and pasting. One of my frustrations is when I see people like right clicking to copy and then paste things in. I've even worked with developers who did that. And it just makes me want to tear my hair out because just just learning control C and control V is life changing if you add up all the times that you can. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And it's even, you know, certain concepts like thinking about an Excel spreadsheet where people color code columns in or rows of data versus, you know, having an indicator, a true, false, a yes, no, A, B, whatever it is, they're using colors or, you know, just all these other things where it's just like, if you spend a little bit of time and actually even just structured it within Excel, you would make your life a lot easier, but yeah, we do blame Excel for a lot of these things, and it certainly enables some very suboptimal behavior, but it, it, it does allow people to do things uh, it does allow people to do things that they were probably going to try and do anyway, which is take take shortcuts to make it look easier and more visual now, but more difficult to maintain down the road. Exactly. And that's the problem, right? If you look at any kind of modern organization, and if you're not in the IT organization, we don't really have that many tools outside of Excel. If you're going to do any kind of data manipulation, it's Excel. I mean, maybe there are some some BI tools to help you visualize and, and get at the data, but any kind of manipulation, it's it's all Excel. And that's the only option. Yeah, those rely you're... on generally someone else having done the work to create the data that where, where you will do some last mile work. Exactly. And, and that's what I always think. Like every organization, you have your IT experts, but then you have people in the business that know VBA or they know the details of Tableau or Salesforce or wh- whatever tool you're using. There's always some level of expert there. And what I've always you know, kind of dreamed or hoped that we could start to bring those people up to have some proficient Python or R or some language so that they could be a little more general purpose in, in the way they tackle the problems and solve their problems. So how, how have you found the, the data-driven part of things? So like you said about trying to evangelize automation through Python, but part of your role is also using data to inform decision-making and so on. Is that something that was in your in the remit for the job you have now, or did you have to come in and evangelize that concept? No, the the job I have now, part of the reason it was actually a new role that they created because they realized they needed someone to take a look at the data and you know wrangle the data and present the data in a way to help inform the decision-making process. And, and what I think is interesting about it is the organization understands the importance of data, but it 
It's funny, like as as you prove yourself, as the organization feels comfortable that, okay, you do understand the data, you are making decisions based on the data. It's almost like they care less about seeing the data. Like they, they don't really want to see all the visualizations and what's going on. It's like, I trust that you ha- have done this, you know, give me the summary, give me what your recommendation is. And if we need to dive into it, I trust that the, the data is behind it or your visualizations are there or whatever. So it, it's it, it's kind of interesting. It's almost like the, the better you get at it, the less they actually want to see the work uh, that it takes to get there. Or at least that's been my experience. No, I mean, that's a good place to be, right? When you've got enough buy-in that they trust your methodology. Yes. And it is one of those things that takes time. And I'm relatively new to the organization, but they're a little over a year. And as as I presented ideas and recommendations and people come back and ask questions and challenge, rightly so, and you can point back to the data. And then people are like, oh, okay, yep, makes sense to me. And then, you know, it really builds that credibility and makes it easier to even make more maybe, you know, challenging recommendations to the organization. Can you tell us what would be a typical day in the life for you? Sure. So couple couple different things one my my life is I, I have a lot of strategic activities I do and a lot of very tactical activities so on the strategic end it may be more like we discussed a new product that's coming out in a few months trying to understand where it fits in the market what our pricing strategy would be what our discounting strategy would be based on the data we have. So so that would be one. So one part of the day could be, you know, looking at some of that data, presenting the data, gathering the data, having anecdotal discussions with people, just understanding what's going on in the market. The other part of the day would be more, what are the tools and processes and data we need to have in place so that we can execute these strategies? Or what are the barriers to the strategies that we've laid out that we can't execute because we don't have the tools in place? And so, you know, for, for instance, if we had, you know, a, a pricing strategy that was dependent on market share, well, do we have market share data? And is that market share data at a granular enough level for us to make decisions? Well, if we don't have that, you know, can we go get it? Where can we get it? Or another way to look at it is if if individual people are making pricing decisions, how do we present that information to them so that they're fully informed and able to to make the you know right pricing recommendation to the customer? So what are the the processes? What are the tools that we need to set up to do that? So you know, right now we're actually going through. Uh, a big Salesforce implementation. So a large part of my job is what are the pricing tools and the, the contracting tools we need to put in place. And then the the other part of my job is almost like that that feedback loop to understand the strategies that we put in place. How are they being effectively used on a day-to-day basis? So if we have a pricing strategy, here is that's supposed to go uh, you know, across the United States. Here's an individual account. Did that strategy yield what we hoped at that account? And are there lessons learned from this specific use case that maybe would would mean we need to change our strategy or maybe monitor or, you know, any of those other types of things we may need to do based on that kind of one situation? So you're sort of working on defining 
these strategies and these metrics, but then you're also looking at how they've been used and improving them. And that's, that's a nice position to be in. It must be good to see the continual impact of your work. Yeah, it, it is. And, and that's one of the, the key things from a pricing strategy perspective is it's very easy to set a strategy that is unexecutable, right? You come up with this plan and it looks great on paper, but at the end of the day, you have to get you know, the whole organization aligned and moving forward in the right direction and all the other systems and processes have to support that. So I, I, I do enjoy that kind of holistic aspect because I think sometimes strategy can be a little too abstract. Like uh, it's hard for me to, to work on something for years and years and not actually see something. I like to actually, you know, come up with the strategy and then we actually launch the product and then we see if the the pricing strategy yielded what we what we expected and if it didn't how do we change. So that's the that full life cycle is is really interesting. And are you sometimes working with really small data sets to try and make some of these decisions? I mean, I guess sometimes if you've got version 13 of your own product and you've sold a million of them, you've got a lot of data, but other times you don't. Yes, the the data sets that I work with are generally fairly small, and there are definitely a lot of gaps in the data, and a lot of you know just things that yeah the the volume of data isn't enough to to really kind of do maybe some of the the more advanced machine learning things that I'd like to do on it. Just because you still not... got to make your recommendation. That's right. That's the joy of it. it. Exactly, and it has to be a recommendation that people understand how you get there. So like I, I've gotten myself into into corners before where like I, I like using Python. I like the visualization tool. So I'll put together this really cool visualization. It's got box plots and histograms and people will say, oh, okay, on your box plot, you know, what does that box mean? And what do the whiskers mean? And I have to like kind of stop and remind people, okay, you know, this is the, the interquartile range. And then once you start having that discussion, you start to lose people like getting into the weeds like that. So I've learned that sometimes pulling back a little bit and, and simpler and just saying, you know, here's the average, here's the range, here's the distribution, you know, the simpler is, is better, especially when it's more senior leaders. So when, when you have to explain a box plot and it confuses people, I mean, how much space do you think there is within your job within your remit to do some of these more advanced machine learning methods is that just something that that interests you as a as a kind of hobby idea or do you do you actually see it being implemented over time once the organization matures from that perspective i see it being implemented over time the the thing that i think will be the headwind or the challenge is that i think some people think that this can be automated so that we're going to have a black box of some sort that will do machine learning or artificial intelligence on our data and make recommendations. So I, I think if you ask the organization, they'd say, yes, we need to do machine learning. We need to have artificial intelligence. We need to do data science. But I don't know if they understand really what it means down to the do I have all the data elements? You know, what are the features? What, you know, what kind of predictions are we going to make? How good are these models? How do we productionize them? Like, I, I don't think people broadly understand that. There are certainly people in the organization that do, but I think broadly people just kind of think of, well, you know, the, the data science, data science black box will, will give me an answer. 
we uh, we used to call it the insight machine, didn't we, David? You you put a coin in, you pull a lever, and a perfectly formed insight falls out, perfectly automated, preferably with no stakeholder engagement, and doesn't matter whether you had three rows of data or three billion. It's like something you can use right away. It, yeah, exactly. I, I think one of the one of, one of the stories I have is uh, a couple years ago. So not the company I'm at now. There was a presentation going around that you know it was a big kind of like IT strategy, and there was a, a slide, and it talked about we're going to apply artificial intelligence to make better pricing decisions. I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. So I asked him, I said, okay, I'm in pricing. So what are those better decisions we want to make? Well, we want to have better pricing. Well, well, what does that mean to you? Well, how are we going to, you know, like, how are we going to get this data? How are we going to share it with people? And, and no one knew, right? No one really had any like it's it's like saying I'm a I have a company and I want to make more money. Well, well, of course you want to make more money, but but how are you going to do that? And how is this tool going to help you? And, and you know, I, I think that's just like we talked about earlier this this kind of hype associated with data science and everybody feeling like they need to to jump on that that train and not really understanding what it means so that there is a lot of hard work you need to do to to get there and actually have a, a good model and not just check a box and say, you know, I, I, I applied XG boost to this data and now I have, you know, I've done data science. <laughs> is, is is that something that, that also holds you back from like ever rebranding yourself as a, as a more generalist data scientist? Is it, is that, does that play a role? The, the fact that it's so hard to, to push it beyond, you know, simple things because, yeah. because of what we just discussed. I, I think that's part of it. I, I think also partially I, I I know enough about myself that what I like to do is I like to kind of solve problems of a certain size. So I wouldn't want to necessarily be responsible for maintaining, you know, 10,000 lines of Python code, like as my job. I like having a problem tackling it with a handful of lines of Python, getting an answer and kind of moving on to that next challenge versus, you know, taking a, a, a really uh, big code base that you have to maintain because now you've got these productionized models and it's more about just kind of keeping it up and running versus doing that new work. And, and I realize that's probably an oversimplification of the data science role or maybe only a certain type of data science role. But that's kind of in my mind what I've thought, because I, I, I also think there is this disconnect and you two may be in a better place where you can answer this better than I can. But I, I always feel like there's this disconnect between what Silicon Valley talks about from a data science perspective and how a Facebook or an Apple or a Google or a Microsoft is approaching these problems versus other companies. And I think there's just such a big disconnect there. I just don't know how I would translate, you know, what really is that data science role and, and what would that really look like? That's the reason for this podcast. One of the yeah, founding stories is uh, being at a meetup and asking a Facebook data scientist about some of the themes we've discussed today and just getting a blank look. Oh, yeah, because like, it was like, oh, yeah, we just get the data given to us and then we can run XGBoost on it. Yeah, we just ping the data engineering team that works for us in Slack and then they put the data in S3 and then we're away. 
And that is a completely different universe. I mean, it might as well be another planet from what we do. And like what you've described, Chris, is basically what we think data science looks like in the business world, which is most of data science that goes on in the world is places where box plots are too complicated, where the data doesn't exist, where XGBoost is never going to play a role <laughs> or, or not for or not for a long time because of all these other other problems you describe. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And I do think there there's this continuum. So I think a lot of that work that is being done at these big companies is yielding things that are helpful and that will will trickle down to companies that maybe don't have just petabytes of data like, like Google does, you know, where like your question, you know, are we working on small sets of data? You know, we're I'm doing analysis on a spreadsheet with a thousand rows of data. Like it, it's it's not a lot of data, but it you know there's still work that needs to be done to get it in the right format, and and you still need to apply some statistical principles to to analyze the data and make sure you're doing it right. And, and you know where on that continuum data science is going to land, and where I should rebrand myself. I I don't know. I, I mean I think it all kind of goes back to where where I feel valued and where I feel challenged and where I feel like I get a chance to learn and contribute to the organization. Yeah, I, I think that's a common theme for us in the business world, right? Like wanting our work to immediately make an impact and see where it's going to fit in. Like we don't necessarily care about getting 0.2% extra accuracy on some machine learning model. It's all about tangible impact and actually seeing what we do make a difference. What 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 do you think then is the the kind of core skill set for someone to do this job well? And it's not machine learning as we've all kind of decided, I think. I think having, you know, curiosity, like willing to like ask questions, willing to actually roll up your sleeves and do the work. And, you know, I, I, I think this, this concept in, in da- the data science world, people say, you know, I don't want to clean the data, right? Cleaning data is like grunt work or data janitor work or whatever. But, you know, I think that's like the core of what you need to do because that tells you so much about what's going on. Uh, you're in your spiritual home, Chris, with us. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think there was a, there was a blog post I'm going to, space the gentleman's name that wrote that where he talks about you know data cleaning is data science and i i truly believe that so i think you need to be willing to do that you need to have that curiosity and then the the drive to learn so one of the things i do think is interesting about this data science space is knowing you know having some understanding of like what the universe of possible solutions are like you don't need to be an expert in everything, but at least knowing, oh, okay, maybe like high level, what's the difference between linear and logistic regression? And, you know, when maybe I would use an XG boost, I don't, you know, have to do it off the top of my head, but I can like go and Google and kind of figure out how to do it. And, and you know, a few of those techniques and maybe some of the statistical watchouts. Like, I, I think those are all like all those things you kind of need to have in your head so that when you're going through and tackling a problem, you know, at least I'm starting to get to one of those rails where I need to really watch out. I, I think having that skill set, that that knowledge or experience is good. And then just being willing to say, OK, I've reached this point. I don't understand it. I need to learn more. 
and you know kind of rinse and repeat as you tackle more and more problems yeah that that's really interesting the the data science curriculum that i teach is the same we cover really really large breadth of topics to the level of awareness and like you know half an hour of hands-on experience with natural language processing just enough to as you say put it on your radar so that in the future when you get a project where it's applicable then you deep dive and and actually learn what you need for the for the specific task and that's what i think is so fascinating about it all and what i do enjoy is like i i don't really do a whole lot of natural language processing but to see all the libraries that are out there and how much you can do with three or four lines of python code that you can apply against this corpus of text and it'll tell you all these things. And I just think it's, it's fascinating that how much you can do with just a little bit of coding so that if you know, if you have all these building blocks, hopefully you'll know that I, I've got to, you know, use a hammer here and a screwdriver here and a saw here to, to build what I need. And if I don't know how to use it, I can, you know, figure it out uh, and, and get those details. So what, what would your advice be to people who want to get into this space, you know, the, the kind of space that we're in, not not the Facebook, Google engineering kind of space, but this space who are maybe intimidated by some of the technical skills or just intimidated in general about the idea of data science uh, who come from, you know, unconventional backgrounds? What, what sure. would your advice be? I, I think, you know, there's been a lot of debate about what a data scientist is and, you know, the 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 famous Venn diagram and, you know, how many different circles there are. But I think in general, there is, there's, you know, kind of computer science programming experience. There's a little bit of statistical experience, but then there's also this business knowledge. And if you're in an organization, focus on that business knowledge you have and focus on that and then figure out how do you fill in those gaps, either on the statistics or the computer science piece. And, you know, so start with that base of what you understand and then build out some of those other tools and trying to find, like I, I had the the good fortune that in the city where I lived, there was a data science for good organization. So there were a group of people that volunteered to work with nonprofits to try and use data science principles to solve problems they had. So maybe like working with the science museum to figure out how to increase their annual renewals or working with Habitat for Humanities to increase the, the donor pool. And what was really interesting about that is it gave people an opportunity that maybe just wanted to learn to be with experts. And so if you can find those opportunities where you can get exposed in a you know, non-threatening environment and a supportive environment to, to learn a little bit more. I think that's that's great if you can do that in person. If you can't do that, trying to find online opportunities to tackle more real-world problems and then bring them back to your day-to-day job to then level up and, and, you know, have those discussions within your organization about how to apply that knowledge. Or, you, you know, if, if it's just not an option, then maybe looking for other organizations where you can grow. Yeah, I think that's that's really good that you mentioned the taking the business side of things. I and mean, that's what we're trying to to tease out of people on this series is that you've got a wealth of of experience that is relevant, even though it's not in you might not see it on a lot of data science job postings because it's all the technical skills that you know the recruiters will list out. But actually to do the job well it's some of these other things that a lot of people from completely different backgrounds will have just it's just a bit of rebranding to show that it's actually completely relevant. 
Exactly. And like I would give an example of if you get to the point where you've maybe started to learn a little bit of Python or, you know, a language and want to apply it to work, don't try and tackle this really challenging problem. You know, don't start with trying to build, you know, a neural network to, to solve your problem. It may be as simple as here's a report I send out every Friday. I do it in Excel. It only takes me 15 minutes, but I do it every Friday and I understand it. I know exactly what I'm doing. Try and automate that. And it may take you 10 hours, 20 hours to automate that 15 minute report. And you may feel like you're wasting all your time to do that. But you'll get two things out of that. One, you'll learn. And it there's no way to learn programming outside of programming, like reading books and, and watching videos. It, you'll just never learn it until you, you know, use it to tackle a problem. So you're tackling a problem, you know. And then I think what people don't always realize is when you have a problem that like this report that you run once a week and takes you 15 minutes, if that were an instantaneous report, that might change the way you view it. So if you could, you know, push a button and run that report, maybe you run it daily now and maybe it's more accurate or maybe it's easier to incorporate new information that people have been asking for. So I, I think, you know, starting small, starting with what you know and then inching up and recognizing that you're going to be more inefficient in the beginning. And that's OK. This is part of the learning process and don't expect that you're going in with this mindset that I'm going to tackle the biggest problem first. Start small and inch up. Great. I think that's uh, that's fantastic. It's a great note to end on. A former U.S. Navy lieutenant. <laughs> not to be gung-ho from the beginning, but, you know, but yeah, I hadn't, hadn't appreciated that that second point you made about not just the personal, you know, endorphin hit of having done the automation, but how that will open your mind to other possibilities that you, yeah, you never could have thought of outside automation because now you've got, now you've made this information flow more freely. And so maybe it can do more good. It, exactly. And, and I also think that within an organization, there is only a finite set of data that you work with. And so as you work with it, you start to understand it more and get more efficient with it and understand like where the, the gaps are and where maybe the watchouts are. So you just kind of keep building and you'll find that you keep coming back and it's like, okay, my customer information always looks like this and my product information always looks like this. And you, you get familiar with that. And so that's one less thing that you're kind of wrestling with as you tackle a new problem because you've already have some experience with your customer database or you know, your, your, your revenue information or your, your website to logs, those kind of things. Great. And, and then finally, Chris, uh, where can people find you on the internet if they want to uh, follow what you're up to? Sure. So my blog is Practical Business Python, PB Python. I'm also on Twitter at Chris1610. So those are probably the best places to get in touch with me. And I'd be happy to connect with people if they have any questions or want to discuss these topics in more detail. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for joining us. It's been great. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. 